friends. Welcome back to another special episode of Space for Life. We're going to do something a little bit different today, and I think it's going to be it's going to be a phenomenal, fun conversation. But you know, we talk so much Space for Life about ways to grow and to make our lives better and to have better relationships with each other, with God, and how do we move forward and everything. But so many people that I know of are in a stuck place, either with a friend or family member who is stuck in some level of addiction, a friend, or even stuck themselves a little bit in a pattern that maybe they wonder, is this addiction or is this just a bad habit or what? So we're going to take a different tack this day and talk with Tucker and Kathy Wren, good friends. If you listened to this podcast a few weeks ago, had Robert Wren on, former PGA player, and we had a great conversation, talked about Tucker and Kathy and the incredible work they're doing in the world of addiction and family recovery. And so I thought it would be a great conversation to perhaps ask some of those questions that a lot of us wonder about when it comes to addiction, but don't necessarily have a place to go to ask those questions. And I fall in that camp. My dad was an alcoholic, recovered at age 50, and didn't drink for the rest of a a really long life. But even having been in that world myself, there's still these questions, these nuances that I still don't understand. So I think this is going to be a really fascinating conversation, one that's going to be useful for a lot of people. And, you know, on top of that, I think it's just going to be really neat to have the conversation and hear their stories. So I go back with the Wrens a long ways. Tucker was uh, in school with my oldest son, Chris. Um, lots of memories. Uh, I guess I coached you for a little bit in soccer. You did. Way back. You yeah. had quite the team. Well, yeah. <laughs> we did. We did yeah. have a good team. Yep. And a lot of Division One athletes came from that. Too. That's right. <laughs> Some that worked. <laughs> but we had a great time. And I've known Kathy and Robert for, you know, many decades. And so this is kind of a fun and a joy for me, but I think it's so much more than that. So I'm so excited. I'll let you guys do a little bit of the introduction of where you are and kind of what you're doing in the addiction world, kind of as part of your stories. But thanks so much for being a part of this and excited about this episode. Thank you so much for having us. So I have just celebrated five and a half years of sobriety. It was a long journey to get to this five and a half years that I'll dive into. But I'm a peer peer support specialist, so I use my lived experience to help clients that are actively struggling with substance use disorder. I also am a certified life coach, and we, my mom and I do a lot of work with She works with the families and I work with the loved one. Okay. That's great. Yeah. So we started in 2019, we started Illum Family Recovery. 
which is a nonprofit here in Richmond, and we help family members find resources. And I am a certified BALM family recovery coach. BALM stands for Be a Loving Mirror. And huh. it's a certification program. I went through it, and then Tucker actually went through it. And it's about a 10-month program. It's pretty intense, but it's was much needed because I had the lived experience, but I wanted to have the tools that I could share with families so that, you know, it wasn't just the lived experience. So, and it also allowed us to become life coaches also. That's great. Which is cool. Yeah, that's amazing. So why don't we go back a ways and maybe Tucker, you can start off this conversation and tell us a little bit about the journey, you know, what kind of led into, I guess, some of the, the issues that you had with substances, kind of what they were, yeah. say what you want or not what you want and chime in whenever you want. Kathy. Sounds good. So I really struggled with social anxiety or I told myself I did. Now it's my career is literally talking in front of people. So uh, <laughs> take that. <laughs> uh, but, and I really struggled with my ADHD. Um, and so when I got to high school, I was always looking for something to slow my brain down. Um, I, I just, I remember telling my mom, I just want to feel normal. Like, I, I want to feel what a normal person feels like. When I sit down to take a test, my brain is going at 100 miles an hour. I can't focus on anything, anything that I've taught myself goes in one ear and out the other. And I thought that I had found the perfect concoction with the Vyvanse that I was taking as prescribed and the marijuana that I was buying from a guy down the street. I felt like it was that perfect concoction that was, I'm getting the focus, but I'm getting the chill side as well. So the Vyvanse did the focus, yeah, but that wasn't enough. No, it, the, the Vyvanse got me where I felt like I was dialed in, but I felt kind of antsy. Like okay. I felt like, okay, I'm doing everything else except for the work that I'm supposed to be doing. And so when I, when I felt like I was using the marijuana, I had convinced myself it's the perfect concoction. I don't need a psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I, I found it. Like, and so it started as a habit. It started as something that I was just doing for fun, getting some laughs with my friends and felt like I had a really good group of guys and none of us were doing anything to harm anyone. And it kind of just felt like every high school kid in America. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's what you see in Hollywood and stuff. So, yeah. And that quickly turned into, I was doing it a lot more than the average person was doing it. I started, instead of it being like a Friday and Saturday thing, it was turning into after practice, I would sneak off before I came home to get high before I sat down with my family and had dinner. Okay. When, when you, got high was it noticeable to many people or to most people that you were or did it just kind of tend to make you feel normal i think that the big thing with marijuana is you can't really hide it because it smells and so so i thought that physically it didn't change me all that much i felt like it was at that point i was still playing three sports i was still very active but it was definitely affecting the effort that i was putting into those sports subtle yeah yeah and so yeah. 
I, I remember a few coaches talking with me. It was the summer before senior year, and a few coaches talked to me, and you had to check off when you went to the weight room in the summer. And they saw that I had only gone two or three times, and I had Division One coaches that were at that point still looking at me to be a kicker. Mm-hmm. And they're like, this isn't going to cut it. you got to come every day. And I'm like, oh, I'll figure it out. I'll figure it out. Yeah. But the effort was just slowly falling apart for me. Which I guess you really couldn't per, per se identify as a consequence of what marijuana was doing to you. It just was how you felt. Yeah. And, and so that's where I struggled internally. Um, I think that for me, it was, I just don't want to play a college sport anymore. Like I've lost my love for it. Um, right. I want to be a normal college kid and just go to, go to school. And, but having two parents that played a college sport, definitely they, they could see the benefit of the structure that it brought to my life. Right. They knew that I was somebody that really benefit from structure because I am very ADD and I'm very impulsive and, and having that weight room, study hall, all that kind of stuff. I think that for them, it was the only way they saw me being able to make it through college at that point in my life. Got it. Okay. But I didn't really have any severe negative consequences in high school from it. It, it was just all the warning signs where we kind of joke that it's like the smoke signals were going off, but, right. but it, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no pun intended. <laughs> but, but it was hanging, I was hanging on by a thread. Um, that was kind of the first, I could have made a right turn and I made a left turn moment. Um, I, I use that analogy a lot in my life. Yeah. Uh, and I think it paints a really nice picture on, life is full of those turns and picking the right one at the right time can change the outcome of a lot of things in your life. So having said that, would you, I'm jumping in a lot more than I have, but it just raises lots of questions for me. Would you say at that point in time, it had, it was a habit that was growing, but had not crossed this little invisible line that I think of, of being an addiction? I, yeah, I think I was still teetering on that line. I, I definitely, you go through the the checklist for somebody that's an addict. I'm sure I checked off most of those boxes. But I think that I was still at that point in my life where if I had really taken football seriously, really taken some of these other things seriously, I think that I could have made it out the other side possibly without getting to the negative consequences that did come later. Yeah. And even the way you say that to me just raises the issue that even someone who has been in the middle of it doesn't know where that line crosses that, you know, I can handle this versus I'm no longer handling it. I'm just kidding myself. So I'd love to speak to that. Yeah. so one of my jobs in my previous life, for 21 years, I taught at the school where Tucker went to school and your kids, yeah. and I was the drug ed teacher, ironically. And so <laughs> I knew what to look for and what to do when I saw the red flags. And I knew there are risk factors and protective factors. And, and I knew that Tucker 
we could check the box for a lot of those risk factors. So as a result of that, we tried to, as a family, put a lot of the protective factors in place, you know, like getting him, he had a therapist at an early age and, you know, like just getting him the help that he needed along the way. Now we did everything we could, but it, as we know, we can't, we didn't cause it, we can't cure it and we can't control it. You know, that's what we say in family recovery. So we, we, say that again. Okay, we didn't cause it. Yeah. We can't we can't cure it. Okay, and we can't control it. So, okay. but we can mm -hmm. contribute to it, and that's what I learned when I found the bomb. And so, just learning how can I contribute to recovery rather than continued use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and that's really get digging deep in family recovery, like looking up your how you are you are supporting them financially and emotionally and so forth. But, I, but the one thing that you brought up that I really wanted to talk about was, you know, where is that line? So it used to be, and I can't remember what year it was, I want to say maybe eight years ago, they created the DSM-5, which is it's like eight questions. And you are either, it used to be that you're, you're either over here or over here for addiction. Now with the DSM-5, you are either low, moderate, or severe. Okay, with on these eight questions, one of the questions might be, I think it's like, have you ever tried to stop and you couldn't? You know, okay. like, and so mm -hmm. it's these questions. And, and so, you know, you could be like, at one point, Tucker was low, you know, when he first started. And then he and then but so what this does is it allows us to kind of evaluate our use and figure out what is my relationship with the substance? How am I using it? And is it interrupting my life? Like when he says, we, I didn't really have any negative, you know, impact. What was your relationship like with your family during this time? Yeah. Okay. It, it was a little rocky. Yeah. 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 A little rocky. Okay. So, and what was the relationship um, with your brother? It was starting to get rocky. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you were two peas in a pod. Like you guys were best friends. So, you know, like, so yes, he didn't get in trouble with the law until later. So, which he'll get into. But I mean, the 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 consequences were starting to happen. Yes. Okay. And I can remember him saying, I have a black cloud over my head. Only bad things happen to me. You know, and right. that was that was what we call in family recovery, the addiction monster. You know, the the addiction had taken over, it hijacked not just his brain, but his life. Mm -hmm. You know, and so he was putting himself in these compromised, you know, situations where these bad things were happening to him. You know, and so that's which you could just write class. off as bad things, yeah. but they had a common denominator. Yes. Yeah. 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 Okay. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Appreciate that. Yeah. 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 So on that next note, so I go off to college. Um, I ended up playing college football for a year at a small school called Catawba College. It's a little bit north of Charlotte. I listened to my two college athlete parents and I was like, you know what? There is some truth to that. It is something that I said I always wanted to do was play college sport. So worst case, I'll quit after a year. Worst case. And, and so I go down there and I actually have a really good first semester. It was the best grades I had ever had in school. I was really involved with the football team, was really working hard in the weight room. And then around the end of the end of the freshman season i said you know what all my friends from high school look like they're having so much more fun than me i'm at this small mm. school and 
It's not like I'm going to be playing on ESPN on Saturdays. I'm not really into the whole 4 a.m. workouts thing. I want to have a normal college experience. And I went into the strength and conditioning coach's office, and I told him, I said, he was also the kicking coach. And I told him, I said, you know what? I'm sorry, but I'm bringing in my cleats today. I'm, I'm done. And he goes, what are you talking about? You're going to be the starting kicker next year. We, we didn't recruit anyone. You're going to be our guy. And I said, I've just lost my love for it. Like, I'm, I'm doing this, and it feels like a job. It doesn't feel like a hobby anymore. And he said, well, have fun ruining your life. I can feel, I can feel your energy, and it feels like you're hanging on by a thread, and this is the only thing holding it together for you. Oh, wow. And that's intense. It, it was very intense. And it, originally I was like, man, I hate that guy. Like yeah. he has no idea what he's talking about. Yeah. Uh, but within three weeks, my life, it was like the light bulb went up, went out. And I, I was selling weed to the entire college campus. I was the life of the party. I was invited to every party that was going on on campus everyone knew who i was on this like 1400 person campus not for the right reasons no. <laughs> but it all happened in a three-week window and with that came the ego that comes with it came the i'm the man I'm, this is awesome like i wouldn't trade it for the world um so it was the best just before the worst yeah and my parents they they could tell that life was going down the wrong direction at that time. They they could tell that financially I was spending like all the money that was in my bank account. They saw some some guys that were on the football team sending me tweets that insinuated that maybe there were some shady behaviors going on at the time. Um, yeah, I'm a private detective in my <laughs> in my other life. <laughs> it, and they they hopped in a car and they said we're coming down to visit you. And, oh, no, honey, but honey. but that but that was like an hour before they got there. So so they didn't give me much warning. It was basically it was a like, surprise. Oh boy! And so they show up. I'm clearing everything out of my dorm room. I'm like, get rid of it. And they that was kind of intervention number one. That was their, mm -hmm. uh, that, that was their, we it's want you to go yeah. to the wilderness and go to this program. And we can feel that your life is becoming unmanageable and your grades are reflecting it. Your social life is reflecting it. People are worried about you. I got out of that one. They, they were not nearly as trained as they are today. And I, I remember calling my brother and being like, yeah, come pick me up. And he was like, they told me not to. I was like, Jeff, Jeff, come on, you're my brother. And he came and picked me up and brought me back to their house. And and they were like, what do we do now? Oh, wow. Yeah. So it, it was a lot. I think there are, again, in, in what I encourage the families I work with, what I know today, because I've been open-minded to learning that there is a different way, I have learned that I did, I have so many mistakes in the past, but I give myself grace knowing I did the best I could at the time. Sure. You know, and our biggest thing was we wanted him to feel that he was loved no matter what. 
you know, like sure. we, mm-hmm. we, we could not stand, you know, we did not like what he was doing, but he was not a bad person. He was a sick person, right? you know, and then just trying to change our mindset around that, you know, and not take what was happening personal and learning how to set those healthy boundaries of, you know, how we talk to each other and things like that, you know, has really benefited us. But, you know, he ended up going, we ended up doing a true intervention. We had an intervention this when was this? This he was nineteen. Okay. It was the end of the summer after after my freshman year. Yeah. Okay. Made it through the whole summer break and then <laughs> Okay. <laughs> yeah, barely. And so we knew that he wasn't gonna we were not gonna allow him to go back to school. Like we weren't gonna pay for it. If he wanted to go back, that was on him. So it was us coming up with, okay, you've got some options. You can figure it out on your own, you know, and you can do that, or you can go to treatment. And we work with the interventionist and he went willingly and he said, I'm going for you. I'm not going for me. And we were like, whatever gets you there, you know? So, and he said, I'll use when I get out. And we were like, we'll take it one day at a time, you know, and, and we'll just, we'll do our work while you're in there. And that's when our journey really got serious because Robert and I were not on the same page. And so he often tells people like, you know, when it comes to family recovery, Kathy was in California and I hadn't even pulled out of the driveway. If we were taking a trip to California, you know, like he was, but we call it the power of one and bomb. And so I knew as a teacher and an educator that I wanted to learn everything I could to help him and help my family. And so I just started, you know, learning more. I knew the drug education piece of it, but I wanted to learn more about family recovery. And so while he was doing his work, that's when we started taking our work serious. So we could be that united front but he will you know he came out and he continued to use but he will say did you think when you when you said i'll go but i'm going to continue to use was that rebellion or did you believe that you could manage it i think i think for me i was 19 years old and i was like i'm, I'm 19 years old i'm not going to stop like i'm not even 21 yet Right. And so there was a little rebellion side, but I had also seen at that point in my life, then the substances I had tried was alcohol and marijuana. And I was like, I'm going away to a treatment where I'm going to be around people that are there for harder drugs and that sort of thing. And I'm just going to learn more about other drugs. And that's what, but something that I say to families all the time now and that sort of thing is I picked up so many puzzle pieces at that treatment. I wasn't ready to build the puzzle, right? but but I finally got the puzzle pieces on the table so that that day that I was finally ready to say, I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I could put the puzzle pieces together and Mm. know the pieces that I needed. Which is probably powerful, I would imagine, for a lot of people who are on this journey to realize that some of those steps, which might seem like a failure, failure, like, well, this intervention didn't work or this treatment center didn't work, might not have been the failure that they thought. It might be, you know, steps of getting the puzzle pieces that will come together at some point. It's building that foundation. And so it was not a waste of money. We mm-hmm. feel like it was an investment in his recovery. And whenever he was ready for that recovery, that was that investment was going to help. Right. Okay. Yeah. That sounds really, and 
you know, you're talking about a really short little window of time that all this escalated yeah. to that degree. Yeah. And, you know, the average number of times for someone to go to treatment before they find recovery is seven. So that's a lot of, you know, we, and I work with families that, I mean, they have spent a lot of money, you know, and, and I often say it's not, we have to take care of ourselves too. Like you want to retire at some point, you don't want to go bankrupt because of this. So there are programs out there that are not the, you know, $50,000 a month programs. Right. That, but we do believe, I think both of us believe, and I can't speak for you, but just that the longer you can keep somebody in treatment, the better. The pilot right. and doctor programs are a five-year monitoring program and they have the highest success rate because they're monitored for five years. And insurance only covers 30 days. Wow. Yeah. So insurance needs to catch up with yeah. the science of addiction and, you know, the brain science and the, you know, the behavioral science behind addiction to say the longer we can keep somebody in that treatment environment and do a step down program where they're learning the life skills and so forth, the better. So. Mm -hmm. I like programs that have that phase program, like you go to the residential and then you could do the step down. And he was in a program for a year. And then even after he was in the program, they created phase four for us. And that was him living in an apartment, but still being connected to that community that he had gotten so close with, you know, <laughs> and having the mentor continue to work with him and his therapist while he's trying to get his legs under him, you know, out in the real world. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's a reintegration, all, yeah. right? But an all-consuming time of life. Yeah. Yeah, for yeah. for you and Robert, for the family as and, well as yeah, you. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Okay, so, so you went through phase one, came out, decided to continue yeah. to use. So I. And then the real fun starts. Yeah, this where this where <laughs> it really <laughs> kicks off. Call it the roller coaster. So I got out and I think I made it at my parents' house for like three weeks. And they were like, you, you need to find somewhere else to live where we can't continue supporting you if, if this is the life that you're going to choose to live. So my aunt graciously took me in. She had just bought a house and had a had a basement area that had its own entrance. And it was like a one bedroom apartment. She let me come live with her. And I started getting right back into where I left off, except it ramped up a notches so instead of just selling weed to my friends so that i could smoke weed for free i was now selling weed so that i could actually like make money make money doing it which is addictive also yeah i'll get into that and so it's it's kind of a wild story but so somebody that w i was connected with out in utah where i went to treatment who was one of the house managers of the house that i was living in contacted me and asked me, Hey, like I have some weed that I'm getting for a really good price. I can ship it out to you as a sample. See if you like it. And he sent me a sample of a whole pound, a whole pound of weed in Virginia at that time was like $3,000 worth. So sample was a large amount. Um, and I was like, yeah, let's, let's do this. I had nothing to lose at that point. I felt like my life was um falling apart at the seams and i saw a great opportunity to make some really good money at 18 19 years old and i took it 
I ended up selling for him for about probably 14 months. And I, I was probably selling on average five pounds a week and making five to $7,000 every week at 19 years old. At 20. Okay, 20. Yeah. And what 20-year-old knows what to do with that kind of money coming, especially in cash, like cash that you can't just go put in a bank somewhere. You don't put um, it on the income tax form. No, you <laughs> I was not following it with the tax man. And so I was, instead of saving that money, I was I was blowing through it by taking trips and taking all the friends out to the bars and buying everyone drinks and that sort of thing. And with that money came other drugs. So that's where I really started dabbling with some other things like cocaine to keep me up at night so that I could sell more drugs, Xanax to put me down at night so that I could sleep until whenever I wake up. And it was this vicious cycle where it turned into, I'll I'll never forget, there was a night with an ex-girlfriend of mine that she really wanted me to take her on a date. And so I was like, okay, I got to be a good boyfriend. I got to take her on a date. Um, my recipe f- to be able to eat any food was I had to drink two beers, smoke a joint, and eat a Xanax before I could get any food in my system because my stomach was all messed up from all the different substances that were going into my body on a daily basis. At that point, I had gotten down to 135 pounds. Uh, um, right now, I've I could probably lose a couple, but I'm at like two, 200 pounds right now. So yeah, just to paint that six, picture. 65 pounds. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to even imagine. Yeah. Yet 135. I mean, my hip bones were sticking out. Like it, it just looked like I was. Starving. Yeah. They, they literally booked a doctor appointment for me to get 40 blood tests done just to figure out, is there something serious going on here? I know you're drug addict but you've lost so much weight so quickly but no is literally my body needed a certain concoction to just function mm. um so we we discussed the money the money that i was making it became so addictive the drugs at that point were just something i had to have the money was the new addiction that, that was that was the thing that I thought I was the coolest person in the world because I was able to do anything I wanted any day of the week and not have to worry about the money. I called it a disposable income because it's like, you can't save it. Right. And so we had started discussing doing larger and larger. And I ended up, I think the largest shipment I got was 15 pounds of weed that showed up at the door and it was these two FedEx boxes that were literally taller than your front door, just full of weed sent sent to the front door of my house. And that's where the ego just went to the next, like to the moon. I really felt like at that point that I was untouchable and everyone, everyone that was like a big time player in the weed industry at that time knew who I was and it it just felt so good for somebody that felt so bad about where they were in their life 
Mm. Gosh. And then it comes to an abrupt, abrupt stop. So I'll never forget it. It was, it was the World Cup 2012. And the Netherlands were playing. And for some reason, I was like a Netherlands fan in that World Cup. So I've got a Netherlands jersey on. I'm driving down the street. I'm going to pick up the shipment that had just come in. And it was actually like a block away from their house. And I had like 100 addresses that I was sending this stuff to. And this one happened to be a block away from their house. And I pick it up, everything's going smooth. I'm texting my buddies, can't wait to watch the game with you in a little bit, that sort of thing. Next thing I know, blue lights behind me. And I'm thinking to myself, okay, like, stay calm. It's, it's in a box, like, it's not a big deal. Cop comes up to me, it's at the corner of, Harriman Patterson, that church that's right up that way. Hmm. And he comes up to my window and he says, license and registration, everything feels normal. And he, I noticed that he keeps looking out my other window though. And, and I'm like, okay, something's starting to feel a little off here. And he goes, son, look out your passenger window. And I look out there and there's about 20 undercover cops with assault rifles. Hold on, man. And and they're oh and they're goodness. throwing they're throwing warrants down on my on my seat on my passenger seat with my name on it, my partner and what I was doing's name on it for our apartments, our houses, our everything. And oh. and they cut this box open and pour out all the weed and. Unfortunately, they were, they were a little disappointed because they had heard that I was selling heroin and guns. It, it was a little bit of a disappointment for them. But I remember telling the cop when I got in the car, thank you. And and he looked at me like, dude, you're about to go to jail. Like, what are you? And I said, I would have never stopped. I was in, wow. I was in so far where... I, I was making so much money and living this lavish lifestyle that I would have never stopped doing what I'm doing. So you knew at that moment that this was your only way out. Yeah. It, it was this or death pretty much. I felt like I felt like those were the only two endings for me because I think that when you're when you're 20 years old and you're making that kind of money, it's so hard to just say, it, it's kind of like gambling. Like you, you get going and you're on a hot streak and you're not just going to walk away when you're on the hot streak. You're going to keep going until your friend says, all right, all right, let's leave. Yeah. Same thing with this. Unless, or you just lose it all. Yeah. <laughs> right. One or the other. Yeah. 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 Well, and you've mentioned ego several times. Like that yeah. just plays such a huge part in addiction. And I don't, you know, having known you from, you know, young years, you would be the last person that I would kind of associate ego with. There was nothing about you that was high on his horse or anything, but yet that was a big piece of this. Well, that's kind of the, that's kind of the funny part about it is that 
even even my friends that I still talk to today that were friends with me during that period said that I was like that that silent person that had a big ego. Like he mm. knew that all it took was go get me this. Like yeah, it wasn't like a in your face thing. Yeah. It was like a silent like I know I I know I own you type of. A thing. So would you say I'm I'm listening to this and I'm kind of just thinking that in a sense, the drugs gave you a personality and the money and the dealing gave you an identity. Yeah. So is, would that be accurate? That, that's completely accurate. And I see it with a few clients that I work with right now that are going through the same type of thing. It's they, they grasp this identity because of the culture that they're around. And, and so it doesn't matter where they were raised in the lifestyle they were raised in. Right. They start associating with a different group or something because of the lifestyle they're living and it becomes their whole identity. Yeah, we used to say he was a chameleon mm-hmm. because whoever he was hanging out with, he'd start talking like him, dress like him, you know, just become yeah. like that. And we also talk about how, you know, like where'd that moral compass go in all this? Because, you know, you weren't raised to do this. And sure. Addiction, I think, takes that away from you. You know, you're just, it, it hijacks, like I said, the brain, your behavior, everything. And you become this person that you don't really recognize. But we knew, and we would say to him, you know, we believe in you. We're waiting for you to believe in yourself. Like we knew in our heart that, that Tucker Wren was still in there. Right. You know, and that if we could just love him there, you know, and, and then and con- continue to contribute to recovery, then, you know, hopefully at some point he would choose recovery. But as, as you said earlier, which I thought so, so powerful is you couldn't cure him. Mm-hmm. You, there were no guarantees. You could love him perfectly. And there was no guarantees that he would change. Right. It's just got to be. be okay with that. And I don't, how to I don't be know. Okay I, with that was hard. I don't know how. I mean, that's just mind-boggling to me to think of with my child mm-hmm. to think of being okay with the possibility that it may not get better mm-hmm. hmm. yeah. so let me throw one other question in just it's coming to my mind because i'll forget it otherwise do you do you think both of y'all that there are to what degree does an addictive personality play into this. I mean, certainly there are, at least as I've heard it through all of the years, you know, the the chances of someone becoming an alcoholic that comes from alcoholic parents is mm-hmm. substantially up. And the the kind of the, the language around addictive personalities, I guess I worry at some level that that can become a red herring, so to speak, that people can think, well, I don't have an addictive personality or that, or that they do one way or another. It's like, well, I'm, I'm now a victim or I'm not at risk because I don't have that. Mm -hmm. And I know that there's, or my sense is that there's some truth to it, but I wonder whether it's overplayed. Well, I think there are two 
aspects here. So there's, instead of calling it an addictive personality, you know how I mentioned the risk factors and protective factors? Right. So I think looking at those risk factors, and one of the major risk factors is there are characteristics, right? Impulsivity, okay, is one. Well, what, you know, the prefrontal cortex isn't fully developed, which is controls our pre, our impulsivity until we're 25. So what teenager isn't impulsive, right? I mean, right. It's, it's who we are at that age. So again, trying to put them in that where they can learn from their impulsivity, learn how to control it and things like that, those life skills. But, you know, thinking about genetics, the genetics play 65 to 70% of whether somebody will have addiction or not. So for example, we have it on both sides of our family. So he's at much higher risk for somebody that doesn't have it on both sides of their family. And so I made sure both of my boys knew that, you know, as the drug addict. But so, you know, knowing your family yeah. history is really important because yeah. the more it runs in your family, the higher the risk. Right. Okay. So that's a big piece of it. And then again, just those risk factors. So anxiety, ADHD, male, males are at a higher risk than females for addiction. So just knowing some of those risk huh. factors and knowing that, okay, and the characteristics that come along with it. Hmm. That's great. That's that's very helpful. Yeah. So bad day. Yeah. So bad day. Bad day slash good day. Yeah. Depending on which side you look at. Yeah. Yeah. So I went into the interrogation room and it felt like I was in, in one of those movies in an interrogation room, except it was my real life. And they really do do the good cop, bad cop thing. It wasn't a, I can laugh at it now, but it was, I think that that was kind of the step one of my parents seeing that I was taking a little bit of an initiative because the second that I walked out of there, I had a lawyer set up. I had like, I had things kind of in motion and I, I remember them as disappointed as you can imagine that they were, they were happy to see that like I was. I was taking the initiative to sort out the lawyer, the some of the other pieces that needed to happen because they made it very clear if I were ever to get into any legal trouble, I was on my own. That was right. a boundary that we set. Sure. That, as hard as that mm-hmm. sounds, I'm sure that you just had to be straight out mm-hmm. with that. And, and if you yeah. say it, you got to stick to it because if we didn't stick to it, then our word means nothing. Right. Yeah. And so I go through, that was probably the worst year of my life, honestly, our life as a family, because picture this, you go into court for that first pretrial hearing or whatnot. And my court case went on for over a year. So I had three, three or four hearings in a year and they kept waiting for the weight of the drugs that come back from the the lab and stuff. It was taking forever for some of these things to happen. You know, to build the case. Right. And so meanwhile, like it's, it's really hard to hold down a job knowing that I'm going to have to leave to go to jail at some point. So you were out during that time. I'm surprised that was allowed. It happens all the time. And what do you think they're going to do when they're out during that? not going to get any easier. Right. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the anxiety and the, I mean, it's the, the system needs to be revamped. Right. Okay. So we are, 
we're coming to grass on a plea agreement with the Commonwealth. And all of a sudden, last two weeks before our court case, they changed the Commonwealth attorney on the case. And so it went from a case that my attorney felt very confident that we were going to get a nice slap on the wrist and it wasn't going to um, result in any jail time or a felony to a new Commonwealth attorney coming on the case who was young and hungry, as mm. I remember my attorney describing it. And he was not budging. He was, he, he's going to do jail time and he's going to be a felon. And I remember those words coming out of my lawyer's mouth and just thinking to myself, my, my life's done. Like, mm. Mr. Invincible is no longer invincible. Like, I'm, I'm just like average Joe walking down the street. And so I ended up agreeing to a plea deal of, it was five years with four years, six, four years, eight months suspended. So I had to serve four months in county jail. They let me pick kind of like when I would go in there so that I could get through the holidays and be with them until after Christmas and that sort of thing. But I was going to get four months in there and then walk out as a convicted felon. And I remember when my last month being in county jail was the month that all of my collegiate graduate bodies were graduating from college. And so I'm sitting in a jail cell while they're graduating and celebrating, moving on to the next chapter in their life. And I'm walking out of jail two weeks after they graduate as a convicted felon. I remember the reality really kicked in when I applied to a job at Home Depot and they told me we can't hire you because of your criminal record. Hmm. And this was right after he got out. Yeah. So, yeah. But he, while he was in there, he said, find me somebody that I can talk to that will understand. So we found this wonderful life coach here in Richmond that now I work with him and he still works with him. But so I refer people to Joel and, and he will still stays in contact with him. But I mean, I would say that this life coach saved his life because he has a felony for gambling and he shares his story openly. And he just, um, he helped Tucker go from that negative mindset to this, you know, flipping his mindset. And he does a lot with law of attraction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, yeah. Yep. And so he just, he helped Tucker and it didn't happen overnight. I mean, we didn't get here overnight. And so it took time to you know break some of those habits, those thought patterns and everything. But, um, but then to me, the most impactful story is the night that what happened after he got out of jail. So we thought, like for me, having to talk to him behind a window, you know, in a phone and not hug him and kiss him and stuff was really hard for me. Like yeah. that was, that sure. was my low. And so we don't, in the bomb, we don't believe that they have to hit bottom. We believe in raising the bottom up. And so that's when I say we always said we would contribute to recovery. Like to me, that was us always offering for him not to have to hit that bottom, you know, but mm. did he have to get to the point of um, desperation or just that feeling of, okay, I can't stand my life like this anymore. I want something different. That's what we're looking for as family members. Right. Okay. So every time I intervene 
and I try to make things better for him, I'm interrupting that process. So because of that, after he got out of jail, he, he went back to selling because, you know, it was, I mean, people, that, people saw him as that person, you know, and so it was, you know, he was getting texts from people and, he, you know, he didn't change his phone number, so he got pulled right back into it. And we saw that happening. And so that's when we had to set some boundaries and say, look, we can't, we can't do this. You know, we're not going to contribute. We're not going to help you with the rent. You know, you're going to have to figure this out on your own. Um, and if something happens, we're going to let you figure it out because we had to let him have that desperation, right? Those natural consequences. So I'll let you tell the story about the car. Yeah. So I was at a friend's house, had a few drinks and man, was going, like she mentioned, back into some old habits. And so I was running out to the store to pick up some more beer or something. And I was I was on Xanax too. And Xanax, for anybody that doesn't know, it's like when you mix that with alcohol, it's a terrible concoction. It's the zombie drug is what I call it. Right. And so I'm driving down the road, probably have one eye open, driving down Libby. And... I hit a curb going like 50 and a 35 or something. And it knocks my tires off the axles of, of the, of the car. And so I can't steer the car. It's just going at like 50 miles an hour, kind of just skidding out. And I miss a light pole by about six inches and end up in the, what used to be the sweet frog front porch on living. And, and my car is kind of just like parked up on the side of it. Fortunately, it only took out like a little bit of that front porch, but more fortunately, I didn't hit that light post that. Or anybody. Yeah, or, yeah, anybody. or anybody. Right. And, and it's I, 2 a.m. I remember being there just, in, I was by myself. So there's no one in the car with me. And I, uh, First person I called was somebody that was at the house. And I was like, hey, I need you to come up and help me out. Um, and then I called them and was like, hey, I really need you, your guys' help. And at first they were like, all right, we're, we're heading out. Like, oh, my gosh. And, and then all of a sudden I get another call back. And I'm like, why are they calling me back? Like, what could they need? So we are getting this phone call at 2 a.m., which is never when the phone rings at 2 a.m., it's never good. And so we look at each other and we're like, you know, we're getting, throwing our clothes on and we're getting ready to go out the door. And I said, we can't keep doing this. We need to call him back and say, you know what, buddy? You're going to have to figure this one out. Once we knew that he was okay, he didn't need to go to the hospital, you know, then, and so we called him back and we said, we'll talk to you tomorrow, but we're going to let you figure this out. Now, keep in mind, if the police had gone by, he would be sitting in prison for five years. We knew that. But we knew that we had to get off this roller coaster. Wow. And I think it was a turning point for all of us that we stuck to that. It was the hardest night of my life. It was the hardest decision. But it was one that needed to be made so that he could realize that we were no longer going to be that, that, you know, safety net for him. Well, and so, I, I mean, I just can't imagine how hard that would be for you and Robert. Mm -hmm. 
to come to that place. And I'm sure as you're helping people with family recovery, part of the, the challenge of that is two good people who want the best for their child or for their loved one, having different perspectives on how to arrive at mm -hmm. that point and having to, to work it through. I mean, that, that just had to have been a excruciating conversation and, and moments to arrive at that point. Yeah. So we had done so much work. Like we didn't get there overnight. Like I said, we right. had our own therapist. We walked out one night when he was living with us and he goes, where are y'all going? And we said, we're going to go see a therapist. And he's like, you're not getting divorced, are you? <laughs> and because he was thinking that, you know, sure, he yeah. was causing so much because he knew he was causing friction, you know, yeah. in the house. And so that was a pretty important moment for our, I think all of us too, for him to realize that now we're, we said, we're going to see this person so that we can get on the same page with each other. We need this, you know, so that we can help you and figure out how to help you in the best way. So we had a therapist, we did, you know, lots of things. We went to family recovery meetings. We went to family anonymous. So we had to do a lot of work on ourselves, but that night when we looked at each other, we were in total agreement. There was no doubt that we were not going to get in that car and go get help. We were in total agreement at that moment. It's a very defeating that, feeling. Oh, that must have so surprised you yeah. and blown you away. And it had to have been hard on every level. It was. Um, but like she said, it was. I think it was the biggest step in our journey as a family. Because for the first time in my life, I saw that I can't call dad and he's going to show up right. when mom says no. <laughs> like, right. uh, yes. So it was finally them attached at the hip on it. And it made it so that I knew I'd gotten myself into a corner where there was only one choice and it was finding recovery and working on our relationship as a family. Hmm. And that's something that we... I want to stress too is that in the bomb we say we are connected to our loved one deeper than their substance relationship. And what I mean by that is, like I said earlier, no matter what happens, I wanted him to know that he was loved. Like we still, when we could, tried to do a family vacation. Now I'm not saying those vacations were pretty, okay? <laughs> but we were determined to keep that connection going. You yes. know, like even when he was living in his apartment, like I would take we weren't maybe not giving him money for things, but maybe taking, you know, a meal or something or say, you want to come over for dinner. But the boundary was, I don't want to see you under the influence. You know, like I just, if you can come over and be sober, then we would love to have you over. And that's how I want to spend time with you. So that keeping that loving connection, because if you try to set a boundary with somebody that you don't have a connection with, it'll fail. Well, it's rebellion. But, but you're also saying, and I, I appreciate this, that you can set a boundary on behavior, mm -hmm. whether it's addiction or other Anything. issues, mm -hmm. without necessarily uh, setting a boundary on love. It might, it might not appear that way to right. the person. What am I, is that, is what, that a fair yeah. way of saying it? One of my favorite things that they used to say to me, and it goes with this really well, is you always have a choice. You might not like the choice, but you always have a choice. Right. And I remember that when they sent me to treatment, when they 
did various things. They were like, no, no, you have a choice. You just don't like the choice that we're giving you. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you can walk out and support yourself today if you want. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they they always showed their love and support as long as I was taking those positive steps in my life. Like sure. I wouldn't be able to live with myself knowing that um, when he when we realized he was selling again because we were supplementing the apartment. We pulled that money out. We said we will no longer supplement because all that did was give him extra money to buy the drugs. Sure. Yeah. You know? So it wasn't directly maybe, you know, buying the drugs, but indirectly it gave him the opportunity to heal himself. And so just looking at the life and saying, okay, and, and some people call it tough love. I just call it, you know, I'm setting this boundary because boundaries are for me. Like I would not be able to live with myself if I knew that I was making it easier for you to take the Xanax and the cocaine and the whatever else. So, yeah, I think the I've, at least to, to myself, you know, the problem with the phrase of tough love mm-hmm. is that all the emphasis goes to the word tough. tough. So I don't it's like, like, to use like that it's phrase. like mean. You yeah. know, we're going to be mean, but we're going to call it love. Yeah. And you're just talking about boundaries yeah. that are are necessary and for a person's good. Yeah. That that you enforce. Mm-hmm. I, and we like to call it loving well. Like, this yeah. is how I'm going to love you because I, I respect you. I yeah, respect I like you. that. Mm-hmm. I give you the dignity to figure it out on your own, but I get to figure out how I'm going to contribute to it. Yeah. I get to figure out how I'm going to spend my money because this is coming from me. Right. Yep. That's yeah. great. So you escaped, uh, I mean, in a sense, really did escape yeah. that going horribly. Various things that could If the police had dri- yeah. driven up that night. Yeah. Yeah. And then started a new life. And then a few weeks later, my mom and I talked, mm-hmm. and she given me another one of these opportunities, we'll call it that, to go live with my uncle in Arkansas. He's a lumber salesman, and he was like, I'll get you a job. I had done odd jobs off and on because as a convicted felon, you got to do what you got to do. And he got me a job working in a cabinet shop. And so I learned how to build cabinets for six months and transport the cabinets around the state of Arkansas and install them and really had that time to reevaluate what that next chapter of my life was going to look like. By no means was I clean and sober at that time. I was still drinking too much. I found a way to wean myself off of Xanax, which I do not recommend anyone doing because it's very dangerous, but mm-hmm. I didn't want to tell anybody that I was still on it. So I found perfect way to do it. And I knew I had to do it because I knew I didn't know anyone in Arkansas to find more. And I called my mom after about eight months of living in Arkansas and said, I really want to go back to school but I know I need some structure in my life if I'm going to go back to school. So let's find a place that has a good transitional living house that I can go live in while I get reintegrated back into college. Yeah. Yeah. Not in Colorado, which people are like, Oh my God, why would you send him to Colorado? You know, marijuana is legal out there, but it was 
I did my research and I made a list of the things that I wanted in a program. I wanted adventure, I wanted experiences, I wanted the therapeutic piece. And we talked about what he wanted and I wanted that long phase program and that's what he agreed to. And so we looked and I came up with three and one of them was in Boulder, Colorado. And so we went and looked at it and normally they only take people straight from residential, but they did it. He did an interview and they're like, he's ready. We're going to take him. And he was their post mm -hmm. poster child for the year Gosh, that he was there. That's amazing. That gives me chills. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, like you say, I mean, you were at a point where, you know, you stop or you die, Yeah. you know, and gosh, I just think of knowing you from young and that's just, you know, it's an amazing story, you know, in five and a half years. Yeah. yeah. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. Thank that's, you. that's, that's really amazing. Mm. Gosh. Well, and I, I love, like, what are some of the benefits of being sober? Like, I, I mean, just, I love when you share that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I think that the biggest benefit is this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The the wholesome relationships I have in my life that uh, hmm. none of the, I, I always tell people that are new into recovery, I'm like, how much drama do you have going on in oh your life gosh. right now? Drama, I'm like, drama, I don't even remember yeah. the last time I had drama in my life. <laughs> like, that's the kind of stuff, though, that seems minor. But for your mental health goes such a long way when you have these wholesome people around you that you can call when life throws you yeah. a curveball and, and you're able to talk it through and say, see, you know what? Life could be so much worse than it is. That's such a great word that's lost wholesome. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, that's a that's a great. I love that. Yeah. Hmm. And just real relationships you know, mm -hmm. and, and deep connection. Yeah. And it's just this beautiful thing. And it, again, it's one of the, it's a transition period. You know, you're transitioning, you've got this paradigm shift in your, in your life that's happening where you had it, we had it. And I just think that it's been amazing to watch the growth and you know, he did, he, there's a theory called the rested development. And it, and it tells us that from the time they start using, he was 15, it stunts their emotional growth behavioral growth so when he was 20 he was still acting like a 15 year old emotionally he had no coping skills because anytime he had anxiety stress frustration what do you think he would do he would turn Reduce to stress mm -hmm. yeah and so you know he cut he caught up to himself you know his age he's 30 gonna be 31 i can't believe it uh. you know this because of christopher <laughs> but so he is I mean, he's caught up to it and gone beyond it. I mean, he's so wise beyond his years. Sure. What he's been through and his resiliency and everything. And I told him when it all started happening, I said, buddy, you're going to be the first to go to rehab. You're not going to be the last in your class, sadly. You know, and life happens. Bankruptcy, divorces, you know, I mean, life happens. So you're going to be okay. Well, and, and I, think of, I think of my dad, who was an alcoholic to, to age 50. So those years, a lot of years up until I was age 18. But you were exposed to all that. Right. You know, you know he was an alcoholic and he missed, he missed a lot. Mm -hmm. I guess we all did miss a lot. Mm -hmm. And as horrible as your journey has been, you know, from 25 forward, you get to start yeah. fresh. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's, that's amazing. Yeah. I am very thankful that I didn't have too many, too many things in my life that I had to clean up. I look at right. like a lot of the clients that I work with today that have two kids, have a ton of debt that they're having to dig out of. And I think that for me, it was pretty easy. I, I don't have kids. I don't have that right. debt that, that some of these people do. And what I tell everyone though, is that's the importance of having the community around you and finding the people that you can lean on that have been through a similar experience. One of my favorite sayings in this field is the opposite of addiction is connection. And, mm. and it's so accurate. I mean, that's the whole purpose of the 12 step community. That's the whole purpose of the smart recovery is building that community so that you have that connection with people that have been through a similar trajectory. Wow. Even plays on a sober softball team. <laughs> that's and that's they, great. They go watch them. They have so much fun. Yeah. I think of you as five and a half years. And, and one of the things that surprised me with my dad was my dad, as I, I can't pinpoint the exact year, but he was still going to AA meetings, I think at nine. Mm. Oh, yeah. And I thought 40 years into it, you know, aren't you beyond needing that? But yet it, it wasn't it wasn't about being beyond needing that. It was a community. It was a community that he gave to tremendously. It was uh, part of his life. And I thought 40 years. So you're only five and a half years into it, you know, and that's which is incredible. But, you know, it's a lifetime ahead, and it's a lifetime ahead of you being able to help people. Yeah. And, and I mean, I've taken a little bit of an unconventional route. I'm not big into the 12-step community, but I get to be that advocate for, for the people to build communities in your own community. And, I mean, I had so many, going back to that wholesome word, some people that I grew up around that are just like the 12-step community for me. Right. Um, they're the people I can ask for a coffee and go talk to them about a big life event or something. And I think that that's something for people that kind of get turned off to the idea of the 12-step community sure. is mm -hmm. understanding there's a million pathways to get to where I am right now. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's... figuring out what works for and 12 steps is amazing, but as you yeah. said, it's not the only way. So I, I think we've talked about so many things kind of just in the midst of the story. And I can't tell you how much I appreciate your honesty and transparency in sharing these things. I, I, I think, I don't know that I would be in the same place where I'm in your shoes in terms of your willingness to share, but I think it's a way to really speak to people with that honesty. So I appreciate that so much. But I'd love to maybe just ask each of you kind of a little bit of a closing question in terms of things. Tucker, I'd love to know what you might suggest to someone who is on that line that too much of something's going on and there's still that place that's gray of a choice turn left or turn turn right and 
I think there are a lot of people. We're we're in a really substance, mm-hmm. you know, obsessed culture, really, in so many ways. And it is so so much a part of socializing. And a lot of it is isn't doing, you know, a lot of harm or things. So what would you what would you say to someone that you felt like, okay, you're the, the smoke signals are going, yeah, are, are going up. You're you're at that pivot point. I think the starting point for me would would be to tell them it's important to find somebody like a therapist or a life coach or someone like that that you can start meeting with once a week. I think I'm an advocate that everyone should have that person in their life because they're there to be your non-biased opinion to just make you a better person. And Mm. so having that, having that person in your life, that's able to elevate your life and be transparent with one another about your substance use or behavior issues that are going on, that sort of thing. I think it's so important. And it's just a, I had a mentor that I was trying to use in moderation with, and, and he, he got me back into being sober by saying, you're just not sticking anywhere to the script that, that you set. And so, mm. but that was because I was transparent with him. Right. Um, well, that's great. Maybe after we finish here, you guys can give me a few resources to put in the show notes, because I, I think that is so powerful because apart from that type of person, then almost anybody we would go to in our natural network is going to be, is going to have a, a clear bias. Yeah. They're, they're going to think, well, you already got a problem. I'm, I'm, and, and then we write them off right. or they're excusing our behavior and we know they're just telling us what we want. So apart from someone who really knows the territory and is trained and willing to speak truth, it's it's maybe the only way of seeing truth. Mm-hmm. So that that's yeah. that's really good. I love that. Um, so, Kathy, what would you? Uh, I mean, it's it's unfair to ask this kind of as just a single question. What would you say for uh, families who are in the midst right now of could be, I guess, a spouse or it could be, you know, a family member. Is there any just one or two things that you would say, you know, here's here's the first places I would go if if you're really worried mm-hmm. and concerned or you know there's an issue. Yeah. So we have I would love to direct people to my resource page um, mm-hmm. of my nonprofit because we've got tons of resources on there for family members. On the resource page, it's got links to online resources, podcasts, books, all sorts of things. And it's Illumin? Illum, I-L-L-U-M-E, okay. Family Recovery. IllumFamilyRecovery.org. We will definitely have it in the okay. show notes. And then trying to find, and it's really hard because, and if you are in the Richmond area, we have some great resources. We're very lucky for family recovery. So we've got North Star which again, that's on my resource page. And then we have a support group that we run at Hope Church and I'm one of the facilitators and that we have anywhere between 10 to 35 to 60 people show up to that group. So it's it's very 
welcoming group. And I think finding community, like just like our loved one is so important because you're not alone in this and you will hear people talk and, and realize that, okay, we all have the same person. You know, our path might look a little different, but it's very similar stories. And just to know that you're not alone and to learn some of the skills that will help you get, you know, like learning how to set those healthy boundaries, learning how to communicate in an empowering way. So you're not trying to fix and tell them what to do, but you're respecting that they will figure it out. And just those tools, like that's what I was wanting. I wanted the tools. I'm like, you know, I know I can't fix it, but I know that I can contribute to it. Yes. You know, so give me some tools. Yeah. That that's, that's phenomenal. I love that phrase that you use of, you know, you don't have to, you you're looking to raise the bottom yes. that people hit because that's yeah. a, that's a great image because I think so many people are terrified that their only the only option is for them to hit a bottom that is beyond what they can conceive of. But, and we don't want that now because fentanyl right. is in everything, and so we want to raise that bottom up and, right. and provide opportunities. Yeah, and so that's where you know, like you said, we gave choice. You know, we're here to give you this opportunity, whether you yeah. take it or not is up to you, but, or you can go out on your own, but mm. we're here anytime you're ready. Mm. Gosh, yeah. I think of a Bible verse, you know, mm. related to you guys story that there are many, there, uh, yeah, no, there are many, uh, you know, what strikes me is it's in the story of, of Joseph and Joseph went through so many terrible things and he was sold by his brothers into slavery. He was falsely accused. He all of these different things. And when he finally came to a reconciliation for with his brothers who had sold him into slavery, said, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And I think of your, your story and all that you guys have been through and evil in a sense in, in the rawest form of, of what you've been through. But I think, God is clearly showing that he, he means and he is using it for good, for your good, but for other people's good also. And that's, that's powerful. And we've so. had lots of God moments. We have. For sure. We have. Yeah. Yeah. We, we feel his guidance all the time. Yep. Hmm. Well, thank you so, so much for, for sharing this. I'm grateful. And I think that there, there will be some people who will listen to this by surprise. Mm-hmm. And, and it's going to speak to them in powerful ways. And we'll have information about how to connect with you guys, you know, in the show notes. So this may be show notes people want to look into. And so I just thank you so much for being a part of this. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks everybody for, for listening. It's been a special episode, special stories, and uh, so appreciate you joining in Space for Life. Please share this with others. There's so many people that could benefit from hearing these stories. Thanks so much.